0: My name is Mason Cainrich. I am an historian of some minor fame, probably best known for my work on The Ignition, the term given to the destruction of the great city of Korriban. A little over a year ago, a man who claimed to be a survivor of Korriban's last days tracked me down. His name was Ciro Orente, and he had worked as a diplomat and spy in the city, and he told me bluntly that my book was wrong, and he was eager to tell me what really happened. Being generous to myself, even if everything Orente told me is the absolute truth, I wouldn't call my book wrong but only part of the story. We left the narrative with Orente's rescue from the hands of the Sacred Brotherhood by a combination of the notorious Captain Chloe Vasker and a mob of Korriban citizens, or so it had seemed. The mob was actually part of the growing movement that wanted Korriban to be declared an independent city who had no love for the Sacred Brotherhood, who they, accurately in my view, saw them as a tool of the most repressive regime in the city, the Draven Empire.
1: Letter of Wilson Trek to Barras McCrane, an Aryan People's Council member. December eighteenth, eighteen eighty four. To my dear friend, I hope this letter finds you well and that your family prospering. Scissory gets bigger with every day. The midwife thinks it'll be another two months till the birth. As you advised, I found another job. Assistant to a carpenter. It isn't much, but we'll hopefully avoid any questions about where my money comes from. All of the groups are growing slowly. I think the people are coming round to our way of thinking. They're sick of just being an ornament to another empire. We have enough people and money to exist on our own, and then things can get better. Thank you for your offer of weapons, but it is easier to buy guns in the city and shipping them in would run quite a risk for all involved. No one will think it is odd, people are used to looking after themselves here. Explosives might be another matter, but I don't think we're there yet. Many of our members are eager for action now, and I am trying to keep them calm. Few of them believe the Congress will ever happen, and even if it does, no one else will support us. I mean, why should they? But, so you know, we are ready. Hell, most of us are ready to storm the walls. Yours sincerely, Wilson.
2: Reply, January 14th, 1885. To my comrade, Wonderful news about Cesare. Children are a real blessing, and they make you think of the future. You are working for a better home for them. Congratulations on the job. Having a normal life is important for appearances. Of you have money, the next payment will be delivered in the usual way, as well as the other items you mentioned. When needed, explosives will be made available. As you are our contact, I would advise you not to attend too many meetings or be too vocal in your views. You're too important to have anything happen to you. I know it will be hard, but put distance between you and your comrades. It is for the greater good. I promise you. Our enemies will have spies looking for people like you, and the Dravens will not be kind on people they see as traitors. Your people have long been oppressed, Wilson, by one empire or another. It is no surprise that support is growing. This is the time for revolution, but take no direct action yet. Even if you could defeat the soldiers in the city, thousands more will arrive in a few days, and all you would have done is lost your anonymity. Besides, as long as the Baris ship is in the harbor there is only so much you can achieve. Our government still thinks the best course of action is to slowly build up your strength, peacefully, and wait for the Congress. It is not important that no one supports you, Wilson. A free and independent Korriban prevents any of the other powers controlling the city. If the Barists can't have it, they won't let anyone have it. If your movement can be seen as a suitable alternative, you will find support. Remember, Hanaria cannot support you directly. I am your friend, and, we'll be honest, no Hanarian army will rush to help you. Even if the government wanted to, it would take weeks for our soldiers to get there. For now, diplomacy is the answer. Your loyal friend, Barris McRain.
0: It was no easy task in finding those letters. I knew that McRain was the Hanarian responsible for the city, but the name of the man leading those in Korriban had been a mystery to me. Once Orente told me who that was, well, it was somewhere to start. Wilson Trek was young to be a leader of the rebellion, but evidently he had proved his effectiveness. Giving me the identity of Trek and that making sense with my research did a lot to increase my faith in Orente. Now, we turn to the three emperors, arguably the three most powerful men in the world at the time coming to Korriban to finally break the deadlock of the Congress and get it finished.
3: The Arrival of King General Salas Castor, April 16th, 1886. Article by Jared Davins, published in the Korriban Star. The first of the three emperors arrived in Korriban today. King General Salas Castor, the Mariakan ruler, entered the city at 2.43pm through the Baker's Gate, and his reputation suggested made a rather muted arrival. Twenty cavalry officers rode in procession with His Majesty among the first row, only distinguishable from his fellow soldiers by the few yellow decorations on his red uniform. Following the cavalry was a procession of carriages carrying government officials, advisers and others. Included in this group was Rensi the co-monarch and queen-servant. The crowd seemed disappointed with the lack of spectacle, but it is imagined that the arrival of Emperor Varance II of Dravia will provide sufficient entertainment. It is hoped that with the arrival of the three emperors that progress will finally be made in the Congress of Korriban, now entering its third year. The representatives of the three major powers, Moriarka, the Draven Empire, and Barristan, lack sufficient authority to make treaties, needing to refer to their superiors. Naturally, this has meant that the Congress, which has been scheduled to take nine weeks, has so overran. Many other nations have followed suit, meaning a total of 31 other heads of state are present in the city. To many in the city and further west, the Moriarcan political system may seem confusing, so it may be worth explaining. 800 years ago, the old kings of Moriarca instituted two organisations that they hoped would provide them with capable soldiers and administrators to take power from their nobility. First, they formed a standing slave army, buying young slaves from abroad and conscripting them from the poorest families, and spending years training them. Second, they applied the same system to a civil service. Within a generation, they had a well-trained and loyal army and civil service. Slavery has meant many different things, but soon the poor actively wanted their children to join, as it led to a better life and more opportunities. It wasn't long before some of these slaves were among the most powerful people in the kingdom. When the king was capable, there were an excellent extension of his will. The problem came with bad kings. The slave soldiers and administrators rode through talent, but would find themselves obeying the orders of idiots or madmen. It wouldn't go on forever, and after a brief civil war, the old kings were gone. In their place, the slaves instituted a dual monarchy led by the general of the army and the chief civil servant, with supreme power lying with whoever was deemed more capable. The army and civil service are still filled the same way, with no inheritance of power. A king or queen. Must be chosen from the slave system. This system was by no means perfect, and the Kingdom has had a history like any other, but they have never suffered from the curse of incapable monarchs. King General Castor is the latest of these slave monarchs, a battle-hardened warlord. When he was crowned, he saw his country through an uprising of regional nobles and small wars with neighbours. He is undefeated. King General Castor has an excellent working relationship with Queen Nias, who As the head of the slave bureaucracy handles much of running the kingdom, but ultimate authority rests with Castor. His majesty is said to be a wise and fair monarch, allowing his people much freedom. His reign has been seen as very prosperous and is the fourth in the line of kings that is already hailed as a golden age for Moriarka. When the Arolean Empire fell, much of their empire was absorbed, one way or another, into Moriarka.
4: I watched the knights slowly row away, Oryx staring back at me. I turned back to the people who had saved my life, the legionary and the gang of young toughs. The legionary had hosted her weapon and was talking to the leader of the gang, and I introduced myself. The young gang leader said his name was Trek, and he seemed eager to get back to his work, and he gave no reason why he had summoned his friends to help, other than he didn't like the look of what was going on. The legionary paused before telling me her name, as if she knew that as soon as she did, things would be awkward. She was the famous, or infamous, Captain Chloe Vaska. She did not look how i had imagined her, but her spirit certainly lived up to its reputation. Again, I asked her why she had intervened, and she could give no reason, but she had a clear hatred of the Brotherhood. I slipped her my introduction card and told her I was in her debt. She did not look impressed with the expensively made card, but placed it inside a pocket. I made my long way back home as quickly as I could. It had been a long day of dead bodies, illegal border crossing, and kidnapping. And, of course, I hadn't actually slept from the ball the previous night. I had two residences, an apartment in the embassy building and a privately rented suite. And home was always my suite. Once home, I poured myself a drink and ran a bath and then managed a few hours of sleep before I needed to be out again, to another ball. The life of a diplomat in an important city was already beset with such functions, but the Congress had made it many times worse than normal. In fact, in terms of my actual work, this had been a quiet day. While I dressed for the evening, I thought about Marais' death and what that meant for me. As a spy, he was my direct superior, and I would likely have to take on a lot of his work, his informants, and so on. My social calendar would get busier as well, which wasn't separate from work, really. I tried not to think too much about whether it had been the Brotherhood that had killed Murray. Certainly, their presence in Lady Joquan's apartments was suspicious, but it wasn't necessarily to do with Murray. Joquan herself could have called down their ire. Reporting it to the authorities would be useless. The Berests wouldn't care because it wasn't on their territory, and the Dravens would want to know why Marais was illegally there in the first place. I doubted whether they would come after me. Attacking a diplomat was rather high profile for them. They preferred to bother people without powerful friends. That said, I went to the drawer underneath my bed and found my revolver. It took some time for me to find an acceptable way to carry the weapon without ruining the line of my suit. The last thing I did before leaving was check my notebook, just for a quick refresher on whose party I was attending, what it was for, and that sort of thing. I had a good memory for this sort of thing, but it didn't hurt to check again. The ball was being held by the Countess de Rochaine in honor of the arrival of the American king, not that he would be present, of course. King General Castor didn't seem the type for parties, I only hoped that the Countess hadn't chosen some Morrican theme, or at least if she had, she'd asked some actual Morricans about what such a theme would look like. It was early evening, but I had no difficulty in hailing a carriage and getting to the party. The Countess de Rochaine was the wife of Max Derillion, an Aridian diplomat who had been in the city for some time, attending the Congress. They had such a marriage in that Durillian was a capable civil servant without the means to support himself, and the Countess had the money and title that would be appropriate for someone of that rank. Women entered such marriages as it gave a great deal of independence, lacking in many relationships. Carriages struggled to get to the Countess's house, and the queue stretched quite a long way. A more rational group of people would have been happy to get out and walk the remaining few feet, but not this group. I may have thought it ridiculous, but I did exactly the same thing, waiting for my turn directly outside the house. The ball was being held in Praxor House, a mansion in the most expensive area of barris territory, or at least the most expensive area the public could buy property in. An elegant and modern building it was not, and like most houses of such size, constantly cold. Like most diplomat spies, I attended these functions alone, as often I will need to sneak into some side room, or write a note, or even leave suddenly, and it is simply bad manners to treat a young lady in such a way. Besides, an unaccompanied woman raises more attention than an unaccompanied man. The ballroom easily accommodated the guests, and I was surrounded by well-dressed people Many of the women and some of the men were absolutely draped with jewels. Huge fortunes were being tossed around the room, held on only by a simple catch. Something that was said at the time, and I've heard in the years since, with all of the parties, balls, lunches, teas, banquets, and so on. When did work get done? They saw the measly two hours spent in official attendance at the Congress as the sum of their work. In reality, work never stopped. Attending these parties was work There were people at this party who had been working solidly for three years, night and day It was at events such as these, where there were no minute-takers, journalists and such where a lot of deals were made The barest foreign minister, Mads Walsden, did not attend this ball for the chance to dance He wanted to talk to the Iridian Finance Minister Who wanted to talk to the Wilven Ambassador to Kasaya And so on and so on And then there were people like me, who used these marginally less formal occasions for outright espionage. As it neared ten in the evening, I had already had several interesting conversations that would warrant further investigation, when a woman approached me. I could tell from the nervous way she stood, ostensibly not interested in me or even looking at me, and was not at all surprised when she placed a note in my hand before leaving the room. I waited for nearly a minute before carefully unfolding the note. There was one single word written in Barrist. Brotherhood. I was confused and immediately headed out after the woman. As I entered the corridor, I saw her slipping through to another room and followed her. I managed to catch her in the next room, just as she was about to slip outside. I grabbed her wrist and demanded to know what was going on. But I didn't need her. I could see out into the gardens of the house, where two men were loitering with some menace. I recognized one of the men as one of the brotherhood knights who had come close to kidnapping me. I let the woman go and found my revolver. I opened the door to the garden and strode forward. I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do, but felt that honor demanded something of me. I was about to raise my pistol, when I was stopped by a voice behind me. I recognized the voice and spun round. It was Medea. The border agent who had abandoned me in my last confrontation with the Brotherhood. She looked at me in an intense way and warned me not to get involved. I was about to argue, but something in her face told me she
0: was right. And so we have the return of Lotharan Medea, the border guard who so quickly abandoned Orante when confronted with trouble. In fairness to Medea, I dare say I would have done the same. A lot of listeners have commented unfavorably on Medea, judging her for the corruption of her work and her lack of courage, but something I encourage in historical research is not to judge a person too harshly when all you have is one sliver of their life. Virtually all records on the border guards were destroyed along with Korriban, and as such I have been unable to find out anything about her time as a border guard. But fortunately there are census records for the city that were carried out nine years previously. There were several families using the Medea surname, but only one contained record of a girl by the name of Lotharan. This family lived in the Straight Lane District, one of the poorer and more dangerous parts of the city. Lotharan's mother died giving birth to what would have been her eighth child. Her father was a blacksmith, but, judging from the census, rarely found work. I can imagine Lotharan having a very difficult life and cannot blame her for the chance of more money and maybe even power than being a border guard would bring. Always remember that when you see a person, whether in the street or in the course of studying history, they have a past, events you do not know about that shape their life. The
5: Reignition Theory was created and written by Richard Norton. The show's audio engineer is Jamie Stoffer. Anyone wishing to contact Jamie can send an email to jlsaudiobooking at gmail.com or find Jamie on Instagram at jls underscore audio. Mason Kainrich was played by Mike Queller. Mike is also the host of the Weird Tales podcast. Find it at theweirdtalespodcast.podbeam.com. Siri Arrente was played by Graham Rowett. Find Graham on Twitter at Graham NY. G-R-A-H-A-M-N-Y Wilson Trek was played by Nick Koyama. Find Nick on Twitter at World of Nines. Iris McCrain was played by Juna Loon. Find Jonah on Twitter at cryptic underscore MSG. Gerard Davins was played by Ella Back. Find Ella on Twitter at Tired